Well then, let's uh, turn back to the <coughs> passage of Scripture that we read in the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 32. And in verse 9, we read that the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Especially these words at the beginning of verse 10 where God says uh, surprisingly to us he says to Moses let me alone or leave me alone. Now last uh, Lord's Day morning we looked at the second commandment which was a command not to make any image of God in any form whatsoever uh, because when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai he revealed himself without form we'll notice that God is careful about his image and his character and he never wants us to project our own ideas of God as we inevitably do if we make any image or likeness of him and last Lord's Day evening we saw an example of the breach of this second commandment, an example that took place within weeks, of course, of the Ten Commandments being given. And that example is the one that we find in this chapter, where the people want a, a visible representation of the God that they worship uh, to go before them, leading them into the land and, of course, being a focal point during their services of worship. So they made an image of God and used it in their worship. And one of the reasons they did that was uh, because they had seen it done in Egypt and sadly some of themselves had incorporated that kind of method in worship while they were in Egypt. So here it is creeping back in again. Now, we saw, I hope, in some detail the sin and the sinfulness of the sin and uh, the worship that followed it because we read, of course, here and in the New Testament where Paul comments back on this, we're told that they sat down to observe their feast but they rose up to play. The word play in the Hebrew here and in the Greek in the New Testament is a euphemism for unrestrained and licentious dancing. So it's no surprise that as their idea of God becomes corrupted, their idea of how to worship him becomes corrupted as well. And really we can't say enough, especially today, about how intimately connected these two things are. The way you worship will affect your view of God and the way you view God will affect the way you worship. These two things act and react upon each other all the time. So the purity of our form of worship is always very important. Now, it isn't just the sin of the people that we saw, 
uh, but we also saw the sin of Pharaoh. He tries to manage events instead of stopping events, which he should have done. And in trying to manage them, he becomes an accomplice. In fact, he becomes more than an accomplice. Moses effectively tells him that he is ultimately responsible for what has happened on his watch. Now, let's leave those matters there and turn today to consider another aspect of it. And... That is how Moses deals with the situation. And of course, in seeing how Moses deals with it, we can more or less take it as a given that we're seeing how the Lord is dealing with it. Because the fact of the matter is that the Lord deals with it mainly through Moses, his own chosen servant. Just as he still uses the church to deal with the sins in the church. So here he takes Moses, his own servant, to deal with what has gone wrong in the church. And we've got every reason to believe that Moses is guided by God in everything that he says and does. Even the more doubtful things, when he takes the sacred tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments are written on both sides of each And he simply smashes them uh, on the ground. In that, we recognise God's command and not Moses' anger. So we'll look at how uh, Moses deals with the situation. And if you take a step back, you'll see that his response is twofold. There is a response in anger and there is a, a response in compassion. Now, by saying that, or in saying that, I I don't mean that one response is carnal and fleshly and the other response is spiritual. I don't mean that at all. Both responses are spiritual. The anger is a spiritual response and the compassion is a spiritual response. The anger is spiritual because it's what we call a righteous anger. It's what the Bible calls a righteous anger. It's the same kind of anger that Phineas had, the one of whom we read and sang in Psalm 106. He's another example. Um, It would be just too much of a digression to go into the incident, but there was a terrible outbreak of evil in the camp again, and Phineas was the one who took matters into his hands and acted justly and averted the wrath of God. That is described as a righteous anger. Well, so here, Moses' anger is righteous too. And the righteousness of the anger consists in the fact that it arises out of love to God and a love for God's people. Uh, It's an anger rising out of love for God and love for God. For God's people. Now we see this anger and compassion again in what Moses says and what he does. Let's first of all look at the anger. And that comes to the fore in what he does with the Ten Commandments and with the Golden Calf. Now, first of all, in connection with the tablets of stone, we read in verse 19, halfway through the verse in the second sentence that Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands 
and broken at the foot of the mountain. Now although he breaks the tablets and does so in this hot wrath, it's not a bad temper and it's not a temper that's out of control. And it's important to emphasise that because I've come across many people and books too that say that Moses here uh, was out of control and uh, he lost his temper. But there are two important reasons why we shouldn't see it that way. And the first is that he is not rebuked for it. And we've got no warrant in the circumstances for believing that he was rebuked for it, but that is just not recorded. And the reason I say that is because years afterwards, of course, Moses was rebuked for losing his temper, and we actually read of that in Psalm 106. Moses spoke unadvisedly with his lips, is how the psalmist puts it. The people provoked him uh, at the great rock when the people complained of thirst. You remember that God commanded Moses to speak to the rock. There were two occasions when Moses took water from a rock. If you, if you mix them up in your minds, you, you won't understand this. It's not the first occasion on which Moses was told to strike the rock. It's the second occasion, years afterwards, which hasn't happened yet at this point. Years afterwards, Moses was told to speak to the rock. Instead, he spoke to the people and called them rebels, and he struck the rock uh, with his rod twice when God did not tell him to do so. He lost his temper, and you'll remember that he was judged for losing his temper. Even though he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Uh, I remember uh, reading more than once in the past that we sometimes have to watch those areas in which we think ourselves to be strong. Um, Elijah, very courageous, lost his courage. Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth, lost his temper. Um, we have to watch even where we are strong in case the devil finds us there. But he spoke carelessly in his anger and you'll remember that he was judged, and some people think he was judged incredibly severely because God said to him that he would not enter the promised land himself, just for losing his temper and calling God's people rebels, even though they were, in one sense. It's the way that he spoke and what he meant. Now, <clears throat> you can simply argue from the lesser to the greater. It's, it would be on the face of it a far greater wrong to take the sacred tables containing the Ten Commandments which the finger of God himself had written. It would be a far greater sin to take these objects and smash them if it had been done in sin, if it had been done in anger, if it was due to a loss of control. You can be absolutely sure that God would have rebuked that. But he did not rebuke it, which leads us to think that Moses was acting there according to the commandment of God. The second reason we're not to see it as a sin is because the Lord's own anger is spoken of in this chapter as burning hot, just as Moses did. 
In verse 10 here, he says, leave me alone, he says to Moses. Uh, an unusual expression, of course, we'll come back to it. Leave me alone, he says, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And Moses, of course, pleads with them and says, why does your anger burn hot against your people? Of course, when he comes down from the mountain, his own anger burns hot against the people. But that is just a reminder to us that Moses is just reflecting the anger of God. He is executing the anger of God. It's a righteous anger because he's angry at what God is angry with. He's angry with the right thing at the right time and to the right degree. That's how I once heard righteous anger being described. It's an anger that is angry at the right time with the right thing and to the right degree. And this was an occasion to be really angry. Now, anger, in that respect, is a virtue. And a person who is so cool that uh, he is never angry is a person who is probably lacking in other virtues also. So we need to remember that anger has its place and it reflects an attribute of God. Now, if that's so, if Moses doesn't do this act, through a bad temper, that means that God means something by this act. He is teaching the people something through the act of smashing the commandments. And surely the meaning of that act is simply that Moses is teaching them that they have broken the covenant. They have entered a solemn relationship with God. At the foot of the mountain, the people said, whatever God says, we will do. They had entered that solemn relationship. Moses had sprinkled, we haven't come to this yet, because I'm jumping ahead here because of the commandment, but Moses had sprinkled the blood of the covenant upon all the people, sealing their relationship to God as a nation. Here, they've broken it. They've immediately broken it. They've broken the first and the second commandments. In fact, Supposing this happened on the Sabbath day, which we've got no warrant to say, but supposing it did happen on the Sabbath day, they would have broken all the commandments. There's a spiritual adultery in it. There's a theft of the glory of God, taking it off him and putting it onto the object of an ox that eats grass, and so on. The Ten Commandments are broken. The whole law is broken. As James says, if you break one, you break the whole. Simply because breaking a law is a matter of spirit. It's not an external matter. If you have the spirit that breaks one, you have the spirit that breaks the whole lot. When you sin willfully, it's God you're rejecting. It's not a specific commandment that God gave. It's the God who gave the specific commandment. So you blow the lot. You break the lot. And the smashing of the stones was just a sign of that. And it's a sign that if Israel are going to be saved, they're most certainly going to be saved by grace and not by works. Some, something has to intervene or else as God says he will burn them, consume them and make a great nation of Moses himself so there's anger in the breaking of the law and God is still angry when we break his law we needn't think that his anger doesn't reach us uh, because we are Christians it does he is displeased with every breach of his law, according to the nature of that breach, the, the degree of it and the degree of willfulness and so on. 
The second thing that shows Moses' anger is what he does with the calf, and he does three things with it. He burns it, he grinds it, and he scatters it in he scatters the dust of it into water to make the people drink it. Now I think again that all this is done meticulously, it's done deliberately, and there's important symbolism connected with it. It's all got something to do with how God sees the idol. We know how the people saw it. But how does God view it? Well, God tells us his view of it by telling Moses to deal with it in a certain way. Burn it, grind it, and make the people drink it. First of all, burn it. Now, it, it would be possible to dispose of the golden calf, I suppose, in lots of ways. You could simply throw it away, bury it, or whatever, bury it out of sight, out of mind. But we usually burn what we want to be completely destroyed. We associate burning with that. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why I've always had difficulty with why people want to cremate you know, the body of a loved one. Now, it's, it's not the primary reason against cremation. The primary reason against cremation is different. But, but there's this reason itself. I mean, why would you want to burn the body of someone that you loved? It does not seem, even on the face of it, even to an ordinary person, aside from spiritual considerations, it doesn't seem to be the best way to deal with the body of someone you loved. Because we instinctively burn what we wish to be completely destroyed. And interestingly, some of those people who want to be cremated say that they do so because they want to be sure they're dead and that they're not buried alive. In other words, I want to be completely destroyed. So this is to be burned. And is that not because God wishes to show his judgment upon idolatry and upon false and idolatrous worship? It's not just that he, he disapproves of the idol, but he wants the idol burned as an evil thing, something that is evil in his sight. And let idolatry be like that to us, and let false and foolish worship be like that to us. God's anger burns hot on calf, and God's anger burns hot on false and idolatrous worship. That raises the question sometimes why God doesn't intervene all the time like this. But the answer to that is, as it always was, that's God's patience and grace. He sometimes intervenes and intervenes quickly to show what he thinks of a thing and then leads <coughs> us to understand that even when he doesn't intervene like this, he still thinks of it like this. And you will always find occasions when God is doing a new work, teaching his church a new thing, that he intervenes quickly to protect it. For example, in the New Testament church, Ananias and Sapphira lie. And they are both struck dead. Now, not every liar is subsequently struck dead. But in the establishing of the church, God says, I take lying in the church seriously. 
So Ananias and Sapphira are still to speak to us as though God was striking liars dead all the time. The fact that he doesn't do it doesn't mean that he will not do it because God will judge liars, fornicators, adulterers, drunkards, cheats, covetous, whatever the sin will be, God will judge it. It's his great restraint and kindness that keeps back from inflicting these judgments straight away. Now, immediately he's constituted this nation. Immediately he's entered into covenant. There is a gross sin, so there's an immediate infliction. In other words, I mean this. I mean this. And we are to look upon this as we would look upon Ananias and Sapphira. And we're to say that even if God does not specially intervene like this, this is nonetheless what God thinks of it. And one day, in God's way, he will inflict that judgment. Because of our sinful natures, we think that just because doesn't, God doesn't judge me right now for this thing that I've just done, well, God doesn't really care about it. So I can do it again, and I can do it again, and I can do it again, and I can do it with impunity. Not so. Not so. You're just, as Paul says, you're treasuring up wrath for yourself. Storing up wrath which God will uh, inflict in his time and in his way. So that's the burning. It's the burning complete destruction as a result of the wrath of God. But then you have the grinding of it. Now in the, in the account God gives of this, the account Moses gives of this in Deuteronomy, Moses tells us that he actually stamped on it. So after burning it, uh, he grinds it and stamps on it. Now that again, similar to the burning, is, is an action of complete uh, disapprobation, of total disapproval. If you stamp on something, you're completely treading it underfoot. But by reducing it to dust, God is showing the foolishness of idolatry. As well as showing the evil of it by burning, he's showing the foolishness of it by grinding it to dust. What is it? What is this thing that they had in front of them? Well, well, that's all it is. That's all it is. And it's a sobering thought to think that. We know it in our hearts. I mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah both give us pictures of how elaborately the people of Judah were making representations of God for themselves or representations of other gods sometimes and how they carefully overlaid with silver and yet just how empty these things really are. Well, that's what God does. He takes the idol and reduces it to nothing. And uh, he has his way of doing that too. doesn't matter what you, what you idolize. Uh, to discover the evil of that idol, God will bring it to nothing, whatever it is. Even if you idolize your family, God may just bring that to nothing. If you idolize your work, he may bring your work to nothing. Idolize your money, he may bring that to nothing. Something, somehow, in one way or another, God will bring your idol to nothing. And you'll see it as nothing in front of your eyes. The foolishness of idolatrous worship. But there's also the drinking of it. Now that's an unusual thing. He, he goes to a stream and they gather water and he sprinkles this dust into water and he makes them drink of it. Now, I'm going to say something that I'm sure of and I'll say something that I'm 
not sure of, but that I think may be true. The thing that I'm sure of is that there's a, a definite lesson here, as Jeremiah says, you shall see that it is an evil and bitter thing to sin against God. Um, again, to wean us off the idol, we don't just see its foolishness. We taste it. We taste it. Um, the psalmist, of course, says, taste and see that God is good who trusts in him is blessed. Well, he also says, taste and see that your idol is bitterness, and he will make it bitter to your soul. I suppose that really ties more with what I mentioned a minute ago, by sometimes God making your wealth something that starts to work against you, not for you. Your family may start to go against you rather than for you. Whatever it is you idolize, there will be bitterness in it. You have to discover the bitterness in order to turn away from it as your God, as your God. You can't taste the sweetness of God without realizing the bitterness of idolatry, to see that sin is evil. That's what the text said in Jeremiah. But God said, when you chastise them for their sin, you will see that it is an evil and a bitter thing to sin against your God. It brings bitterness into your life. Now, of course, the devil says at the point of any temptation, he says, this is good. This is good. This will be good for you. And not necessarily the minute it's done, but maybe a little while afterwards, it's not good at all. The sting's in the tail. The bitterness is in the aftertaste. And uh, so they come to hate what they've done because it costs them. Now, I'm sure enough of that. What I'm not so sure of, but I can't help but feel maybe involved here, is something that's related to the trial by jealousy in Numbers chapter 5. Now, I remember preaching on a woman taken in adultery just a few weeks back, and we made some reference there to uh, Numbers chapter 5. If there was genuine suspicion that a, that a woman had been involved in adultery, there was a way of dealing with that. And you'll remember that part of the process involved the priest taking some of the dust of the tabernacle and sprinkling it in holy water, and the woman was to drink uh, that water containing the dust. If she was innocent, it had no effect on her whatsoever. If she, if she was guilty, it brought an affliction into her body, possibly the loss of a child, but it's described as an affliction in the thigh or in the abdomen. Uh, which revealed her guilt. Now, I, the reason I'm mentioning that is because I, I can't help but see some kind of connection between this and the plague with which God afflicts the people. And it's a plague in connection with which Moses prays, and the prayer of Moses is connected to the removal of the plague. So I wonder if there is some spiritual connection here between the two passages. Is there a connection between the water of idolatry which they drink if they are innocent of it like the Levites for example the leaders amongst the, amongst the Levites obviously had nothing to do with the golden calf the drink wouldn't affect them that would possibly be true of well who knows how many people maybe most of the people by far on the other hand maybe some began to become ill and to be plagued and perhaps that connects with the dust in any way in any case, the teaching is clear that idolatry has consequences. 
consequences for ourselves and for our families too. Well then, in connection with that, and in connection with everything we've seen so far, really, I mean, we have to hear uh, the command of Paul to flee from idolatry. And, of course, the command of the Apostle John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well then, the way that Moses deals with the commandments and the calf shows his anger. But as well as that, he is also compassionate. These two feelings can exist in the same heart at the same time. Not, not only are they in themselves consistent with each other, that the same person can be both angry righteously and compassionately, but both emotions can exist in the heart at the same time. And where we see his compassion is in his prayer for the people, or in his prayers for the people. And really to understand these prayers properly, we actually have to go back to the mountaintop uh, before Moses saw the people, when he first heard of their guilt. You'll remember he was just ready to come down from the mountain, having been 40 days and 40 nights in close fellowship with God and having received the tablets of stone. And he was just ready to come down when God, of course, said to him to go down because the people whom you brought out of the land have corrupted themselves and made a molded calf and worshipped it. Now, I just want you to note a couple of things in connection with what God says. If you look at it, um, you go back to verse 10, well, verse 9 and 10. First of all, at the end of verse 10, God speaks about his anger burning against them and consuming them, and he says, I will make of you a great nation. Now notice that. God is saying effectively to Moses, I'm through with this people, but I'll take you and your family, I'll bring you into the land of promise, and I'll rebuild this nation around you and your family. And then, or even before that, he says something very unexpected in our text. God says, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. Leave me alone, that I might destroy them. And I'll make a nation of you. Now what does leave me alone mean? In what sense does God want to be left alone? Sounds a very strange thing to say. It sounds like, don't interfere with me. Don't stop what I'm going to do. Don't try to stop what I'm going to do because my anger will burn, I'll consume them, and I'll make a nation of you. Don't lay hold of me. Don't ask me to do otherwise than what I'm going to say I'm going to do. Well, I think that is what he means by leave me alone, on the face of it anyway. Don't interfere. Don't ask to change it. But sometimes, of course, when God 
says something, even when he says it quite explicitly, he's actually saying it to test what our response to it is. Now, there are many occasions like that, and, and we've got to discern whether God is meaning what he's saying or meaning something else. Now, you may say that that's disrespectful, that God can sometimes not mean what he says or says what he doesn't mean, but we have to understand it in a certain kind of way. We need the spiritual discernment to, to listen to what God is saying between the words or between the lines. What does he actually say? For example, when he, he dealt with the, the woman who wanted healing for her daughter, she was following him, following the Lord Jesus Christ and saying to, to please have mercy on her daughter. And we're told that Jesus did not answer her a word. She carried on pleading and then Jesus said that um, he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she was a Syro-Phoenician woman. She carried on. And the Lord turned to her and said, It is not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. Still, she asked for mercy and she got it. She got it. So the, the, the rejections were apparent rejections that were designed to see whether she had the kind of faith that would <coughs> overcome every apparent rejection until the door was finally shut in her face. And of course, she had that faith which meant that the door was never shut in her face. A better example here, just because of the relationship in the words, is the example of Jacob when he wrestled uh, with the second person of the Trinity. He wrestled with the angel of the covenant behind, beside the Baruch Jabok. And after, after the wrestled all through the night, we're told that God said to Jacob, let me go. Which is just exactly the same here, really. Leave me alone. He said, let me go. Famously, Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God, of course, blessed Jacob there. He blessed him and changed his name from Jacob to Israel because he had shown himself to be a prince with God. He had wrestled with God and he had prevailed. It was a strange kind of prevailing, of course. It was a kind of prevailing that just refused to be beaten. A kind of prevailing that just insisted on hanging on even though he had no real strength left. But God called that prevailing. God appreciated that and he called it prevailing. So when God said, let me go, he was effectively saying, don't or will you? Will you? Now that exactly is how we should understand this expression here. Although it sounds like God is saying, don't pray for this people. Don't intervene in connection with what I'm going to do. In fact, God says, I'll work just with you and with your family. This is effectively a test. It's a test for Moses, a test to see how he responds, to see, for example, whether his concern is for his himself and his family, or does he really care for the church of God? And does he really care for the glory of God? Does he think the glory of God is best served by destroying this people 
Or is the glory of God best served by saving his people? Is the glory of God best served by him being the fountainhead of a new people of God? Or best served by simply intervening to deliver his people who deserve his hot wrath? Well, let's look at his prayer. Let's look at his prayer. The first thing you'll notice about his prayer, and, and this, by the way, is there are two prayers that he prays. He prays one before he comes down from the bottom of the mountain. He prays the second when he goes back up a second time. The one he pleads at the top of the mountain is when he hears that there's a problem. In verse 11, we read that Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, by your own nature, your own integrity, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. You'll notice first that he appeals to God's covenant here. And he actually has, can we call it the audacity? It's a spiritual audacity, really. He has the audacity to adjust what God said. God had said very clearly in verse 7, he said to Moses, Get down, for your people whom you brought into the land have corrupted themselves. In verse 11, Moses turns that round and he says, Your people who you took out of the land of Egypt. Now that's audacious. But it's also, of course, true. And God is testing him on all these points. And Moses is passing this test. It's not my people, this. In fact, you knew that I never really wanted to go down in the first place. It's not my people. It's your people. And I most certainly did not take them out of the land of Egypt. You did. By your strong arm and by your mighty power. Had it been left to me, they'd still be in Egypt. Due to my unwillingness and my incompetence. The next thing he does is he appeals to God's reputation. He says, what will the Egyptians say? What will all the onlookers say when this people came out so powerfully out of the land only for you to suddenly destroy them? What will that do for your reputation as a God of great grace and faithfulness? Now, that's an amazing prayer, really. That's an amazing prayer. He's saying to God, what will the people think? What will the people think when this happens? Astonishing, really, the kind of appeal that he's making. And he appeals to God's character. Remember your covenant with Abraham. Not the covenant that you sealed a few weeks ago on top of this mountain. Precious and holy as that covenant is, that covenant has come in alongside another one. Another one more ancient. Another one that's to endure forever. The covenant that you made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob long ago. Can you blot a whole nation out of your book? Can you forget a whole nation? If the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, 
if you set aside this people to be a special people for you, can it be the case that that gift and that calling is irrevocably gone? If God elects something, the election stands. That's true of the election of a nation as well as the election of an individual. That is why Israel themselves as a people are not yet forgotten before God. And that's why every single one of you elect from the foundation of the world who believe in Christ will stand and will endure. Moses says, you cannot, you cannot wipe out the nation. You cannot do it. It's an amazing thing to pray in that kind of way. You'll notice that God takes no offence. God takes no offence. In fact, God is glad that Moses doesn't want a kingdom for himself. And Moses is glad that he's so concerned for the souls of the people and so concerned for the glory of God. But Moses' prayers don't end there. After he comes down from the mountain, after he breaks the tablets as an expression of God's wrath on his own, after he destroys the calf, and after he supervises the execution of the 3,000 ringleaders of the whole activity, on the following day he's deeply conscious that awful as the chastisement is, it still doesn't meet the gravity or the evil of the sin. Isn't that interesting? You know, very often we read a thing like this and our response is, well, isn't that a, isn't that a severe judgment? 3,000 are killed. Which, as I said, was less than half of 1% of the adult males. But nonetheless, it's a severe thing to see 3,000 people executed in one day. And to be aware of a plague breaking out amongst the people. Moses still thinks that doesn't reflect the gravity of the sin. No, nothing, nothing does. Nothing does. That's because of our perspective. We look at things from the perspective of sinners. We judge a sin as sinners. How can we but be defective in judging sin as sinners? Only the Holy One knows what sin is and its evil and its gravity. And the one who's just been 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God is well able to judge the evil and the gravity of sin. And on the following day, the sun went down on his wrath, if there was anything that wasn't righteous about it. But when he got up the following morning, he still feels, none of this, none of this does justice to the evil that's gone on. And he's constrained to go to the people and say to them, I need to ascend back into the mountain, he says, to see if I can make atonement or covering for sin. You have committed a great sin. I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And the book of Deuteronomy tells us that when he went back up the mountain, that Moses was as he was during the 40 days and the 40 nights, that he took no food or water. This, this mattered a lot to him. No food, no water. Just Moses in the presence of God. He confesses the sin of the people, but he asks forgiveness for it. 
and he says, if not, he says, then blot me out of the book that you've, that you've been writing. Blot, blot me out of the book that you've written. What's that book? Book of life? Well, <coughs> yes, I would agree. But what life? There are many who suggest that what Moses here is offering is that he'll die for the people. Uh, in other words, just take away my life and let these people live. But that's, a, that's an unusual way of speaking. Uh, to use the expression to blot me out of the book that you have written is an unusual way of saying take my life. It's far more natural to think of this book as the book of, book of the living, the spiritually living. But that raises a difficult question. How can Moses possibly want himself to be blotted out of that because <clears throat> that's unnatural to pray that. No, no person can pray that intelligently. No one can uh, volunteer to go to a lost eternity on behalf of somebody else uh, because the principle of lawful, legitimate self-love means that we have to care for our own immortal souls. The closest we can get to a prayer like that is Paul's prayer for Israel. When, when, he, when he speaks about his, his deep concern for them as a people. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, that can't be the right one. Sorry, the previous chapter, he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. By the way, this is, a, this is an apostle who has joy in his heart all the time, but when he looks at his own people, he looks at his own people, he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren's sake. It's really strong language. But you'll notice how he restrains the prayer. I could wish that I were accursed from Christ. He doesn't wish it. He doesn't wish it. But he says, I can put what I feel no more strongly than this. If, if such a thing were possible, I would wish it. That's how deep this love is. But Moses asks for it. But you'll notice that he asks for it in broken language. Do you notice that in verse 32? It's not grammatically coherent. There are examples of that in the New Testament when Paul speaks. The other occasion when something isn't grammatically coherent because he's so full of passion. This is passionate. Verse 32, yet now if you will forgive their sin, you've got a dash there in your scripture. But if not, I pray, blot me out of the book which you have written. This is a cry. This is, a, this is an agonizing cry that's coming from the heart of someone that can't bear to see the destruction of this nation. It's over two million people that he has an affinity with. He loves whatever their warts and their blemishes. And it's no wonder that this kind of cry escapes from. It's, it's not the prayer of a dogmatician who's uh, writing something in the cool of the day. It's the appeal of someone who doesn't, who doesn't know really what to say. 
He says, blot me out of the book. If you're going to blot them out of the book, blot me out of the book. I'm with them and they with me. I cannot bear their loss. It's a passionate prayer. I can't accept it. And this would make so much more sense if the plague is raging in the midst of the people. And he's come up to the mountain with the plague already at work. He thinks that the 3,000 ringleaders have probably been blotted out of God's book. That they are probably people who've never had the life of God in them. And the thought that that may be true of the multitude is something that cuts him to the quick. Deuteronomy 2 tells us that he put up a special intercession for Aaron and his brother at this time because God's great wrath was upon Aaron and his brother. Now, my time has gone too far on me, but let me just put that in two directions. First of all, to yourself and myself. Christians may grieve us, professing Christians may grieve us, and the church may grieve us, and grieve us a lot, but we have to remember that many of the people that grieve us are the Lord's people. And if we are the Lord's people ourselves, then we must feel for them and pray for them that they would be brought back to a right place and to proper thinking and to proper conduct. And if, if there's someone who is wayward and you believe that they are the Lord's, well, this is what an intercessor does. An intercessor is willing somehow to take their place an intercessor so loves and so cares that they will bring them like this before the Lord. I mean, that's who Moses was. And that ought to be reflected in you and in me. But leave that aside. There's a greater than Moses here, is there not? The mediator of the old covenant here is just foreshadowing the more excellent glory of the mediator of the new covenant. He's the only one who could say, let me taste hell instead of these people. He could actually say that. He could go that far anyway. Let me taste hell on behalf of these people. And that, of course, was a prayer that was righteously offered and righteously answered. And it's because of that that we live and the plague has not destroyed ourselves. Moses here stood in the breach, but the Lord uh, stood in our breach under the new covenant. And Moses says, looking back on this incident, that the Lord, he says, hearkened unto me. He hearkened unto my prayer. And therefore, they lived. May the Lord bless our thoughts and his word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, our God, so rich in mercy and loving kindness, how often we could have been afflicted ourselves with a plague and with worse. There is one who stood in the gap and who has interceded for us and still does and who has tasted death for our sake and uh, we pray to see him in us grant us too to be willing to 
stand in the gap ourselves and to pray for those who are not wise enough uh, to do or to say what is right in the sight of the Lord. Help us not to leave you alone, but rather to take hold upon you until you hear and answer our prayers, until Christ is formed again within the hearts of his people. In his precious name, Amen. <coughs> Let's uh, close again just singing the same psalm. Psalm 106. <coughs> at verse... 44. We, we read at the end of verse 33 that they provoked him, and for their sin they were brought very low. But in verse 44, yet their affliction he beheld when he did hear their cry. And he for them his cover did call to memory. After his mercy's multitude he did repent, and made them to be pitied of all those who did them captive lead. O Lord our God, us save. And gather the heathen from among, that we thy holy name may praise in a triumphant song. And after declaring all these incidents of historical intervention and mercy on the part of God, he concludes with a benediction. Blessed be Jehovah, Israel's God, to all eternity. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise to the Lord. Give ye. From verse 44 to the end. Let's stand to sing. Let
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.